Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. If you need a copy of God's Word, please put a hand up and we're going to bring you a Bible. The last two weeks we've been doing a series called Building a Marriage That Lasts using a construction metaphor that we're going to actually have to do something if this is going to work. Like a, a foundation has to be designed and built and then we build on that. Who here will testify that our marriage takes work? Okay? We are not going to find ourselves accidentally in an amazing relationship of any kind. doesn't matter. Marriage, parenting, at the office, your sibling, marriages, uh, marriages and relationships take work in general. And today, I need to find my magical wand. Today, part three, we're talking about getting the crew to work together. We talked about who designed marriage. We've talked about false designs, false blueprints that we've taken in through culture or experience that we sometimes are going, man, I'm doing marriage the way I know because this is what I saw from my mom and my dad. I'm doing marriage the way I know because this is what I've seen on television my entire life. And so we did a little deconstruction yesterday, right? Close your eyes, imagine Jesus standing in front of you, and take all of your assumptions and lay them at the foot of the cross. That was last week, right? God, I've got these things I really believe are true, but I'm going to lay them at the foot of the cross. We're going to see, are they actually biblical? That's hard to do. More hand time. Who will testify that's really, really hard to do? Take all of your assumptions and say, I'm going to let go of this if it's not biblical. It might be really painful, but if the scriptures say otherwise, right? So today we have to get, uh, take a next step. What if a man who loves Jesus Christ and a woman who loves Jesus Christ agree that God has the rights to write the blueprint, that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, and they have even carefully done the good work of letting go of false blueprints, does that necessarily mean that they are now working together? Because there are a bunch of different ways that a man and his wife could still be in conflict even when they love Jesus. There were no auditory amens on that one. But I have a feeling that they were deep down, right? Because I'll, I'll confess for myself. If you grew up in the church, there is a tendency on some churches, and maybe it's just what happens in our heart, I don't know. We think, if I'm in church and I read my Bible and she's in church, and she reads her Bible, everything will be okay somehow. We do this with our parenting. Our kid wilds out, and we're like, I raised my kid in church, right? There's this implicit assumption that, well, wasn't I doing what I was supposed to? Sometimes there's a little bit more detail to what glad submission to Christ looks like. So let's get a little bit practical today. And by all means, that does not mean we're skipping theology. There's so much theology in this text we just read. It's going to be beautiful and powerful. We're going to skip quickly because I've got 26 minutes for the Lord to transform your marriage. Praise the Lord. We're going to skip quickly through some of the theological bombs that Moses is dropping on us in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to go very quickly to the practical application of how to gladly obey Christ now uh, in 20. 23. Note takers, here's your first blank. Grab that pen. You were made by God to build this marriage. Do you know you were made for this? 
Speaking of the world's uh, encouraging motivational speakers and all the stuff on YouTube, do you know you were built for this? You were built for this. When the storms of difficulty in marriage come, and they come, do you know that God designed you on a spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical level to make marriage work? We're going to have to look at something before the fall of man to figure this one out, because by Genesis 3, the man and the woman don't trust each other. They're, they're fig-leafing it after that, aren't they? That shows the horizontal brokenness. Back to the text that was just read. God said, let us make human beings, okay, dynamic equivalent. This is helping you understand if you're new to the Bible. A lot of your translations are going to say, let us make man, Adam. A word that does not just mean the man, Adam. It means humanity, which is why the dynamic equivalent say humanity, people, etc. In his image. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, plural. Anybody wonder how God is plural? Where did we learn that? Okay. Can humanity, this is important, it's not in the notes, can humanity reflect a God who is a perfect, loving, unified community? Can we reflect him until we are a community? Right? Adam was the first thing created where God said it wasn't good. And he was sinless. Ladies, you guys ever found a sinless man? That ever happened? Scripture says a sinless man, it's not good. Why? Because that's just not God's objective. God's objective is to create something so beautiful, it's in his image, he looks into it and he sees his own reflection back, so we shouldn't be shocked. Not only do they need to be a community before they reflect him as a community, male and female together can procreate, they can create more life. Now that humanity can create life, now we look like our life-giving creator. Now we look like him. So in case, if and when, if and when we get arrogant and we make it all about ourselves, the very beginning of design says God wants to see his image, and he says what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What? Fill the earth with what? His image. He wants to see his own beauty and power and glory all over the earth, not just in the garden. He says, make more of you. It's not about us. But in the struggle, we need to know you were designed for this. So the God who is infinite in his wisdom and infinite in his love, let me say it another way. He gave you the tools to be successful. Sin has marred everything, and we're going to get to that in a bit. But God has given you everything that you need to have a thriving, healthy marriage. Do you believe that? Because sometimes I don't, right? I don't believe that and I give up hope. I despair. Uh, I didn't get a picture for it, but uh, allow me to brag on my buddy Jared. So I was trying to get this sensory swing hung up in my back patio uh, to allow the kids to swing back there and have a good time. And I was having the darndest time. I didn't know if I had the right bolts. I was trying to drill it. And I just thought, you know what? I've got a theory, maybe kind of, sort of, that this little... Uh, wimpy electric drill that I have is just not enough horsepower for what I'm trying to do. And I said, Jared, I've got some thoughts, I've got some concerns, but you're handy and I'm not. Would you do me a solid and come help me? And he pulls out of this magical bag where like music plays and smoke and he pulls this amazing 
Anybody watch Tim the Toolman Taylor in the early 90s? <laughs> he pulls out one of these. When it said on there, two horsepower, I didn't sound like a lot, but I realized there were actually two horses inside this machine. <laughs> Whoa. And it was done. Do you believe that God made you the right tool for the job? Did pastor just call me a tool? Yes, I did. Do you believe God designed you with everything that you need to get the job done of a thriving, joy-filled marriage that gives God glory? Where people around you are blessed, they see the image of Christ as a man lays down his life for his wife. Do you believe you have everything that you need? Second, this marriage and home belong to both of you equally. Turn with me one page over to chapter 2, Genesis 2. This marriage and home belong to both of you equally. Starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This was Adam's job. This is how he's exercising dominion is by naming. Uh, oh, I feel like I skipped something. Maybe that's coming up later. Okay. Uh, see what he would call each one. Verse 20. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone of my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Do you guys see the equality there? They are created, they have the, the same name at first, Adam, humanity, and they are given dominion together over everything else in the physical creation. I, I don't even know how you could read it any differently. If you've never been to church before and you look at the first two chapters of Scripture, it looks like humanity is supposed to be in charge. Is that fair? Adam is supposed to be naming the animals. He says, fill the earth, subdue it. Dominion is actually a word used in some of your translations. Exercise dominion over the earth. Steward the garden, tend the garden. He is to, they are to work, to exercise authority over it. And I would put forward to you that even when we have no desire at all to honor God, we still find ourselves operating in a way according to our design. Does that make sense? A train that is off the tracks still might have spinning wheels. Why? Because the wheels were designed and affixed, and you might not be getting anywhere, but you're still kind of sort of trying to operate according to your design. So people who have no interest whatsoever in the Lord Jesus Christ, they still care when pandas are on the verge of extinction, and they'll put together incredible resources to take a species into our custody, carefully study it, give it medical care better than what half of the planet gets, because there's something in humanity that knows we are to steward what is around us. 
You don't have to be a Christian to feel that way, to have that impulse. We garden, literally. We farm, we cultivate. We ask questions like, are we taking too many nutrients out of the soil? We gotta put nutrients back in. Crop rotation, which by the way, God told us 3,600 years ago to do that. Back to your point. (laughs) Science is slowly catching up with God forever. The man and the woman are together given dominion over the earth. And including this command to be fruitful and multiply. Has there any guy who's ever taken his role and made himself big for his britches ever said in his dominion of the family, don't worry, honey, I've got all of it. I will do all of the diapers. I will watch the kids all of the time. I will, no. There is clearly a shared dominion of the home that does not in any way violate dad being a spiritual leader. That doesn't, there's a shared dominion. In fact, one of the, there were a handful of short, there's a short list in the Kaiser home in the late 80s, in which I grew up, of how to get a whipping. Looking back, there were whole tons of things I got away with that didn't, there were not whipping level, but there were three or four things. You tell a lie, your life's over. Like we didn't know, <laughs> no, good Southern Baptist family. You don't tell a lie. You don't hit sister. You don't speak disrespectfully to mama. Okay, if we, this was a guaranteed whipping. If we got a no from mama and went and asked dad. We called it the two and two rule. You're going to wake up two weeks from now, two counties away. (laughs) If dad says no to something, you do not go and ask mom. And I was taught, even from a very young age, that there was a shared dominion in that home. Mom has dad's back. And you know what dad has? He's got mom's back. They are a team. They are a united front. You try to split them, it's not going to work. So the word of one carries the weight of the unit. Does that make sense? Brothers and sisters, if you're raising kids now, if you're young and you hope to raise kids one day, that is mission critical. It is mission critical. And the reason we don't do it is that relationships are hard. And so doing the hard work, gosh, Emily and I this morning spent 45 minutes talking about screen time. I'm not here to complain to you baby boomers, but you had one screen in the living room to decide how much the kids to watch or not watch when you're raising kids in the 80s. And I have a screen in my pocket, and Emily's got one in her pocket, Cabrini's got one in her pocket, highly monitored. But holy cow, the temptation is, this communication is hard work, let's just skip the conversation. Right? Because the kids don't stop. When am I going to get a minute for myself? When are we going to choose to be a team? When are we going to choose to get on the same page? When are we going to choose the shared dominion of this home or of our church or of our city? Where are we going to show stewardship? Really, it's been up on the wall the whole time. Dominion and stewardship are the same thing. You don't own it. You have a type of lordship over it, lowercase l. You guys with me when I say lowercase l? Capital case L, that's Jesus. Lowercase l, we are lords over various domains, and we need to steward them for the glory of God. And here's where the problem shows up. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, This equal stewardship. I want you to imagine that a wealthy relative passes away, has no kids, and so the the, the rich uncle or aunt says in, in their will, okay, you and your wife get the boat. And you're very sad to see said uncle or aunt pass away, 
But hey, you remember summers on that boat, and life is, life is going to be good. Awesome, we have this boat. Uh, question, just theoretically speaking. So you and your wife own this boat, and you have a desire uh, to go one way, and your wife has a desire to go another way. Um, how's that going to go? There's one steering wheel. Now, we can fight over it and turn this into a, a rom-com or something, but this, there's one boat. It is going one direction. There's one steering wheel. So is communication going to be required? Or are you going to have to get on the same page? Are, okay, let's be fair. Are there certain conversations you can keep talking and praying and thinking for the next six months and other decisions that have to be made right away? Right? There are different kinds. Fellas, let me encourage you before you whip out the whole I'm the spiritual leader card, let me encourage you, do not ever fail to be very, very patient in your communication. There are decisions that it, you could maybe think and pray for a year. If there's nothing forcing the issue, wait for the Holy Spirit to work on both of your hearts. Anyway, so there's one, there's one direction you can go. The structure you've been given, this is what I'm trying to say, the structure you've been given inside marriage is that there can only be one direction. So when we are not on the same page as those working together with our hammer and nails trying to build this marriage, if we are not... Uh, joyfully, mutually submissive, if we're not joyfully submitting to Christ and to each other, uh, we're going to have problems. We're going to have problems. So here, here's the problem to, to which I was alluding earlier. Genesis 3, we find out that both of the work crew, the male and the female, want to be God. The architect gave these orders, but we have decided that a talking snake is more reliable than our creator. Insert chuckle here. Talking snake. It just sounds like a bad idea. Where he says to the man and the woman, God's holding out on you. You're going to have knowledge and wisdom like him. It's going to be awesome. Wait for this epic weekend doing what you want instead of what your father told you. How are we going to build a beautiful house when we have decided, I want to be the architect? This is the human condition. Whether you love Jesus or not, you did this. All of us have done this. And we've not just done it with marriage, we've done it with the entire human existence. I want to be in charge. And tragically, in the verses that flow out of this rebellion, this cosmic treason of the man and the woman against God, he says right in the curses that flow out of it, he said, uh, you know you're going to desire to lord it over your husband, but he's going to lord it over you, right? You know that's going to happen now, right? Tragically, it's a very similar language to what Jesus is saying thousands of years later, saying, hey, this is how leadership operates in the world. Leaders lord it over one another instead of being servants. It's really kind of the same idea. He says to the woman, essentially, you know he's physically stronger than you, right? He's bigger, he has different musculoskeletal structure, and that was only ever something that could serve you and protect you. And all of a sudden, it's a danger because you guys just brought sin into the world. There are so many dangers in a fallen world that God didn't design it to be that way. Look at the text, guys. Your husband has a different musculoskeletal structure because he was supposed to be tending a garden. 
He was supposed to be doing physical work. And now the prisons are filled with men. Like 91 to 9 or 92 to 8. The prisons are filled with men. Yikes. Men have a strength and it was given to them for something good. And then we rebelled against the architect. And now the very strength of men is terrifying even to other men. This is why when you've got a teenage daughter, you also have a gun. Praise the Lord. I loved her first. Anyway. If I sing the whole thing, you know you all be sobbing. Anyway. <laughs> this song, I didn't write this. So let me point us to something really important that comes after our rebellion against the architect. Do you know that you are both, if you love Jesus, you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus and you're empowered by it? You guys know that? The same gospel that saves also sanctifies. Let me break that into English. Finding out that Jesus died on a cross to forgive me of my sins and I trust his cross to wash away my sins... We, we, in common parlance, in Christianity, we call this getting saved or becoming a Christian. And that's awesome, but you know what you need five years later? Heaven help you. Maybe you start reading and understanding your Bible, and you're wrestling with doing good stuff, and you find your heart trying to identify and feel good about yourself and say, I'm a good Christian because I'm getting better at following the rules. You know what the gospel does for you in that moment? It reminds you who you were. You, you know you only have the Holy Spirit now. You know you only have a trajectory toward heaven because of my cross, right? See, this is how the gospel humbles us and it keeps us humble. I, I keep repeating the song to you guys because I know a bunch of you know it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, all that Paul lists in Philippians 3, brothers and Saturday morning, you're with me? Okay? Every good work that Paul could have possibly listed my richest gain I count but loss. This is worthless. All the good stuff I have done, I am not going to lean on that to be right with God. Are you kidding me? The same gospel that I responded to, maybe when I was five, maybe when I was 17, maybe when I was 51, maybe when I was 73, that same gospel reminds me, you know, Greg, Jesus is the one empowering all of this, right? He had to die for you. Greg, you understand the flesh that's inside you is just as powerful as the day I saved you, right? Is there anybody here who thinks that if the Spirit stepped out of your life and heart, the flesh couldn't make you into Adolf Hitler? The more we live the Christian life, we see every time the flesh is in the driver's seat, it is unbelievable what I am capable of. And I, my pride doesn't like to think that I'm capable of that stuff, but I am. And we see over and over again that when the Spirit is in the driver's seat, I am also capable of things that I never would have thought I would have done. The same gospel that took you to a place of rebel against Christ to gladly submitting to Christ, joyfully being a part of his kingdom, that is the same thing that is going to keep your marriage together 25 years in, 35 years in, because it's still not about you. And your marriage is still an image of his love for the church. He's working on you. He's working in you. And this gospel empowers you. 
This gospel is what put the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, Philippians 1. The Spirit of God living in you, giving you both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. You know, I don't even have the desire to please God unless the Holy Spirit's in me. And the second half, I don't have the power to do it either. I do not have the desire or the power to do anything right apart from the Holy Spirit. That should keep us humble. It really should. Do we do pride? Yeah, we do pride every day in multiple ways. But then we have to keep coming back to a bloodied cross and an empty tomb. You do it with your marriage, and all of a sudden, your wife has a really humble husband. Because you keep coming back to the cross, and vice versa for you ladies. You're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You're empowered by the blood of Jesus. And where do, why am I... I did not, just so you don't feel Jesus juked by me. We did not move from Genesis 2 and 3, and then all of a sudden I go to the cross that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just wedge in the gospel. Did anybody feel that besides me? How is he talking about the gospel? Is this a Billy Graham crusade? The gospel's right here in the text. Allow me to show you. Go with me to chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. The only character of the story that's doing right by God is an innocent animal that gets killed in order to cover shame. Those of you who've been to church, what does that sound like to you? We're going to see it in the next book, Exodus, when God says, yeah, you're going to take innocent, perfect animals. It's going to be slaughtered, and its purpose is to wipe away guilt, to cover shame. It's the opposite of the fig leaves that you guys have over you now. And he said five, six verses before that, he said to the woman, hey, somebody from your lineage, the seed of the woman, is going to stomp the head of the serpent. What does that sound like if you've got a background in church? Wait, somebody's going to stomp the head of the serpent? I really appreciated Mel Gibson incorporating that at the beginning of the Passion of the Christ. You see Jesus is praying and a snake is coming up and you're like, ah! If you already know the Bible, when you watch the Bible story on the screen, there's no surprise for you. Like, he's going to smash that thing! And that's the point of the entire rest of the film. That snake only puts fear inside me because I don't know what to do with it. The last time the snake talked to me, I failed. But Jesus knows what to do. So back to your boat. What happens if in the name of God, conflict avoidance, in the name of finding peace in my house, what if I say to Emily, fine, Emily, I'm tired of working on this. I'm tired of talking through every dad blessed thing. You've got your opinions. I've got my opinion. Tell you what, babe, you can have the back half of the entire boat. The steering wheel is even back there. And I'll take the front half of the boat. This is called male passivity. Adam just did it, right? He stood there and did nothing while his woman has a conversation with a snake. What could possibly go wrong? Honey, I'll take the front half of the boat. I'll get to put the deck chairs where I want. I'll get to play bocce because I like bocce. You take the bath out of the boat. You'll be totally sovereign. You'll have full dominion over your domain. You shall be queen. But I get to be king in my dominion. What happens, pray tell, when there's a hole in Emily's half of the boat? Hmm? How's it going to go for me? My half of the boat doesn't have a hole. I'm good. I'm putting on some sunscreen. Put on some tunes. Some Beach Boys, probably. There's some sunshine out. 
How long do I get to enjoy the sunshine if my wife's half of the boat has a hole? Hmm? Oh, my goodness. So I get a tan, and then I swim with the fishies. Yee. Brothers and sisters, in marriage, we don't get to bifurcate the way we would like to. We don't get to divide up. We can divide up responsibilities under a shared vision, but we do not get to just like take, here, you take your half of the marriage and I'll take my half. We don't get to. It seems in the moment easier. Some of the things we do to keep peace in the moment, we're trying to survive a conflict that's 10, 15 minutes, but we're lighting the end of a fuse of a bomb that's going to go off in five years. So let's get super practical. I've got blanks for all of these, so let's go. We're getting really practical. Next step, what do I do with all of this, Pastor Greg? I'm glad you asked. Number one, rebuild the tribe. Rebuild the tribe. I'm going to give you thousands of years of sociology in lightning fast. Most of humanity, when a woman gave birth, she had her two sisters next to her. Maybe one of them had already given birth once or twice. Her aunts are there. Her mom is there. The men are together. When this man, who is now a father, is trying to figure out how to raise kids, he is surrounded by brothers and uncles and other men of the tribe who have raised children. They're raising crops out in the fields, and they have a bunch of other folks to go do that with. They're not alone. What I'm trying to say is the nuclear family was not in a box by itself the way it has been the last couple hundred years. Does that make sense? The tents were huddled together. The, the clay structures were huddled together. Most of humanity was groups of 50 to 100. And we'd hang out together. Yes, it really does take a village to raise a child. And if the tribe has gone the way of the dodo, largely because of, frankly, hyper-specialization of labor. I know I just put you to sleep. But when you are a college professor and you get fired from your job at the local university, the only thing you can really do to take care of your family well is to apply at another university. So you are moving two states away now. And so grandpa and grandma and their oldest child and his kids and their daughter and her kids, now we're living four or five different states, don't we? This happens in families sometimes. And it was never that we hated our family. It was just work took me to, we've used that phrase, work took me to Cleveland. Work took me to Miami. This tribe really, that its non-existence bites you in the derriere when you're trying to raise small kids, because I'm feeling it, let me tell you, and you're asking yourself, who do I rely on? When you look at history, there was an answer to that, and in modern history, it's much harder. And we're using drop-in paid childcare in Roseville. We do it all the time. Do we like it? No. But it's survival mode. And I would like to commend... Tim and Rose Sloan. Tim and Rose saw and said out loud, man, we do not have connection to some of the younger families in our church. We should do something about it. And they joined a disciple group filled with 30-somethings and got to know us. And I would say that even in the development of women's ministry now, there's a lot of kingdom fruit that is coming out of this. So I can say from the front as many times as I want, the generations need each other. I can keep saying that on repeat, but I cannot make anybody move. Does that make sense? I can't make you do anything. I'm just saying, no matter what age you are, if you think you don't need people that are at least 20-year age gap from you, maybe 30, 
If you think you don't need them, you're wrong. Okay? If you think you don't need them, you are wrong. I would recommend rebuild the tribe. If you look in your Sunday school class or your Bible study or your disciple group, ministry team, and everybody is the exact same life stage, just be aware of it. Think about, hey, we need to invite some young people to go do X, Y, and Z. Hey, we need to invite some more seasoned folks to come do X, Y, and Z because we need these relationships. Your marriages are going to get better when you know people and, and you have resources together as a tribe, particularly with raising children, but especially what I'm about to say uh, two from now. I'll get to that. Lean into the scary conversations. In a culture that has us addicted with comfort, why would we ever press into the difficult conversations? If I believe comfort is my aim and my objective, it's kind of like this. Close your eyes and imagine you're talking to your spouse and you're uh, saying, if I jump, will you catch me? Like think of that more emotionally than physically. If I jump, will you catch me? That is kind of the core of um, authenticity. How, how, how naked can I stand in front of my spouse? Will they catch me? If I share with them what I really think, what I really feel, will they catch me? And we believe the answer is no. And so that's why we avoid the scary conversations. Why am I telling you to go into the scary conversations? Because you have all the tools that you need from a creator who loves you to go to war with sin, to go to war with disunity, to go to war with your own pride and serve each other in a beautiful dance. Maybe the Gottman check-in that I left on the chairs is how you could maybe do that. And then here's where I want to talk about multi-generational again. Recruit another couple to play referees in your marriage. If you do not know a couple that is 20 or 30 years your senior who loves Jesus, then how are you going to ever feel comfortable enough to invite them in when you are stuck? By the way, it's not always chronological age. Sometimes there's a couple that's the same age as you. But you came to Christ three years ago, they came to Christ 35 years ago, and you trust what the Lord has done in their life. You trust them. And so you say, hey, my wife and I, we've gone back and forth on this. We cannot find unity. We cannot get on the same page. And we know, because this is what it, where, here's where the rubber meets the road, we know you care more about Christ's glory and loving us in a long-term way than you do about appeasing us in a moment. We trust you to tell us hard things as a couple. Is that beautiful and is that powerful? We trust you to tell us what we need to know because you've been married for 40 years and we've been married for 10 years. And we're stuck. Could the four of us get together and we just share, knowing in advance that we've brought both genders into the conversation, an older man and an older woman with incredible wisdom are going to share as best as they know how. They're going to ask good, healthy questions that we didn't know to ask because they've been there. And we let them play referee. How would football work without a referee? It would be a brawl. It would be a brawl. And this other couple has no agenda except the glory of God and that they love you and want you to thrive under what's true. Does that make sense? What good referees, except they're just outside of it. They've got clear heads and we don't. Lastly, going along, 
discuss and write down family core values. Cannot encourage you. And you actually don't need to be married to do this. You need to do this for yourself. Under Christ, what do I believe are the core tenets of my life and how it should be lived? In a marriage, you know what writing down core values forces you to do? One, you have to have those scary conversations. You're afraid of disagreement. Communication skills are put to the test, right? But let me tell you what the blessing is of working this out. This, has, this is for a church. This is for a business. This is for a marriage. It's for a country. I cannot, even with texting, I cannot communicate with my wife every hour of every day in the heat of the moment when I'm trying to raise my son and he's doing X, Y, or Z if my wife and I have already talked through and agreed on and written down our core values as a family, I know what the constitution is of the family and I operate inside that constitution when Emily and I can't call a timeout and talk. Does that make sense? Even if Emily's in the room and one of my kids is doing something, I still can react out of the constitution, not out of, well, let's be honest, my own constitution. Everybody comes out of their own childhood with their own thoughts and beliefs, their own blueprint. What if we carefully get onto Jesus' blueprint and we write down, what do the specifics look like in our home? How are we going to play this out? I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to say one more thing before we go. Jesus, we trust you that as the word of God is read and pondered, that your Holy Spirit is going to transform us. God, we ask you to crush all the places of pride that we know are always lurking and cropping up in our hearts, wanting it to make us autonomous, self-reliant. God, I ask for supernatural healing of your Holy Spirit because, God, we've been in conflict with our spouse over things that we believe we cannot possibly talk about that. That is off limits. So I ask out of your mercy, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. Would you give victory in marriages here in this room? Would you give victory over the areas where we have already told you we couldn't do it? Like Sarah, we laughed that you couldn't make a 91-year-old woman get pregnant. We've laughed in your face, God. Would you show off mercifully? Would you show off your power and your love for us? God, we want to honor you with these relationships and we celebrate and we thank you and we praise you that you have designed us in a way where we can do this. Especially with the family of faith giving wisdom. We can do this. God, we thank you. We love you. In the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Here's the announcement before you go. I would like to tell you this public service announcement. We're talking about sex next week. And if you don't want your face to look like this, or your child's face to look like this next Sunday, just know, if you've got kids or grandkids that are with you on Sunday, and you have not told them about sex yet, please make good use of our Cracker Jack Kids Ministry, Foundation Kids. Um, I consider this sermon when I preach it PG-13, so if your kid is junior high or older, by my assessment, it is totally appropriate but every parent has their own take, okay? We support the parent in whatever their decision is. If you've already told your child about sex, I believe everything that I'll say is, is totally appropriate. But again, that's my subjective opinion. Love you guys. Have a great week.